Hi, and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Bethan. No, stop it. Uh, and I'm Mark. Uh, welcome back, guys. Great to have you with us once again. I always tell Bethan off when she uh, introduces us as a true crime podcast, because I don't know. We, we dropped it, didn't we? We used to say it, and then we dropped it. We only dropped it because you moaned. I don't know what your problem is with it, but... Yeah, I don't know what my problem with it is, to be fair, either, so... Anyway, welcome back, guys. Thanks for joining us this week. Excuse our domestic. <laughs> Oops. Um, thank you for joining us once again. Uh, we have a very special thank you, a number of very special thank yous to make to our Patreon supporters over the past week. So the people that have joined us, uh, they are Jenny Dalton, Alison FR, Alex, and also many thanks to Jason Abercrombie, who increased his pledge. Thank you, Jason. Thank you so much, guys. This week's case represents a bit of a departure for us. For a long time now, we have focused on murder. Child murder, multiple murder, motiveless murder, you name it, we've done it. So I thought it would probably do us all some good to have a break from the various orgies of bloodletting that usually dominate the show. So for one week only, as I'm sure normal business will resume next week, I'm going to take you on a deep dive into the world of celebrity and British tabloid journalism. For the first time ever, today's episode focuses on perjury, the offence of willfully telling an untruth or making a misrepresentation under oath. In other words, the act of lying in court. And of course, there will be a number of twists and turns along the way. Um, It's not all white-collar crime today. Class A drugs do also feature heavily, so fear not, it's not too much of a departure for us. I'm really excited for this case because I remember it happening, but I don't know much about it. So I'm really excited for this. I remember it happening. And yeah, I think I I kind of followed it quite closely at the time. So um, I debated whether to cover this for a while, whether there was enough with it and how to kind of tell the story. So um, hopefully I've I've done it justice, but there's an awful lot to it. When Mazza Mahmood was born in 1963, journalism was already in his DNA. His father, a Pakistani immigrant, had founded a local newspaper which was printed in Urdu and sold within the locality of Birmingham, where Mazza lived with his mother and father and two brothers. As he grew up, Mazza took a keen interest in his father's newspaper. He saw firsthand the impact the newspaper had on shaping the small community of Pakistani immigrants who lived in the area. He also noticed the newspaper's power. It wasn't a living, breathing thing, yet it was capable of influencing people's opinions, changing the way they saw the world around them. It was capable of impacting their judgment and the way in which they saw themselves. And Mazza was intoxicated. At the age of 16, he was desperate to strike out on his own and emulate his father's success. He applied to undertake work experience at his local newspaper, but his application was turned down two years in a row. Sure, he could have just worked for his father's newspaper, but Mazza was someone who marched to the beat of his own drum, as one future boss would later comment. So, after being turned down by the local newspaper twice, Mazza seized his opportunity when some friends of his parents came round for dinner one night. Mazza would later describe how one of the guests admitted to making and selling pirate videos. The man in question worked at a cinema and was able to get hold of new release films that he would then go on to copy onto videotape before selling for a tidy profit. Despite this being a family friend, Mazza thought nothing of calling the news of the world and selling the story. So impressed were they, 
they gave him a job, and so began Mazza's illustrious career in journalism. Jesus, that's so harsh. So they're there for like a dinner party, and he's like, "Oh, tell me all your secrets, so I can go sell them." So whilst this rather auspicious start in journalism proved to be Mazza's big break, it did definitely uh, spell the end of some relationships with his family. Um, I believe he didn't speak with his brother for 25 years. So yeah, they weren't very happy with what he'd done, which I can totally understand. But I don't really think Mazza gave a shit. He got what he wanted, a career in Fleet Street. Either you're the sort of person who can chuck your family under the bus or you're not. And if you are, you're not going to care, are you? Oh, he's not talking to me. Never mind. I'll go, what was it you said? Well, I've got a jag so he can fuck off. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so after working at the News of the World as a lowly junior copywriting assistant, Mazza joined the Sunday Times in 1985 at the age of 22. His boss there, a man named Roy Greenslade, described him as a self-starter, someone who would go out and get their own stories rather than waiting for them to be phoned into the news desk. But, in a hint of what was to typify Mazza's later journalistic style, Roy Greenslade noticed a slightly maverick approach in his vigorous pursuit of an exclusive. Furthermore, it was during Mazza's tenure at the Sunday Times that his integrity would first be called into question. When he made an error with some copy, Mazza blamed the Devon news agency who had sent in the story. Roy Greenslade didn't believe him and decided to investigate. He uncovered Mazza's deceitful behaviour and found that it was he who had made the error, not the news agency. Furthermore, it subsequently came to light that Mazza had attempted to cover his tracks by erasing the original correspondence from the news agency from the newspaper's hard drive. And so, with Mazza's integrity called into question on such a grand scale, he was given two options. Resign with a clean reference or face a disciplinary panel and the sack. Mazza chose to resign and it wasn't long before he was back at his old stomping ground, the news of the world. It says something, doesn't it, that the Sunday Times aren't so keen. Go back to the news of the world. Yeah, I think they would have welcomed him with open arms. So um, we talked about the news of the world a little bit here and most of you will probably know of the news of the world. But given that half of our listeners are from outside of the UK, I thought I probably should elaborate a little bit here. So, founded in 1843, the News of the World was one of the world's highest-selling English-language newspapers. Originally established as a broadsheet, it was transformed into a tabloid in 1984, several years after it was bought by Rupert Murdoch. It specialised in celebrity scoops, gossip and just generally populist news. And I have to be honest, I loved it. It was a Sunday newspaper, so it was only printed once a week, but it kind of made Sundays a real event. It was the newspaper that would always get the story, and the editor seemed to have an almost bottomless pit of money to buy up exclusives. So it was a great read at the time, and I say at the time because, of course, it is now defunct, but also its copy may have provided titillation to the masses, but all was not as it seemed at the time, more of which later. To be honest, I will say as well, you do like a bit of a trash, trash magazine, trash newspaper. I remember what you used to read when we lived, when we worked together. I was going to say when we lived together. When we worked together, I remember what you would read. Yeah, I loved it, didn't I? <laughs> anyway, so when Mazza started work at the paper in 1991, it was already well established as a sensationalist tabloid. And this suited Mazza's journalistic style. 
He had often been pulled up at the Sunday Times for pursuing stories which were not in keeping with the newspaper's values. It was a broadsheet, still is, and it's considered to be more conservative than its tabloid counterparts. Mazza's pursuit of sensational headlines jarred with its readership. Perhaps his days there were always going to be numbered. So Mazza soon gained a strong reputation as an enthusiastic and ambitious young reporter. He specialised in traditional investigative journalism and set about unmasking corrupt public officials, paedophile rings and drug gangs. He initially shied away from celebrities in the early days, but as the public's demand for celebrity grew in the mid to late 90s, he was drawn to them like a moth to the flame, or like Bethan to a vat of wine. Not even going to argue with that, it's a fair comparison. (laughs) It's a compliment to be fair, isn't it? I could have been much worse. You have been in the past, so thank you for not insulting me. And it was around this time that Mazza adopted the persona of a rich Middle Eastern businessman, subsequently dubbed the Fake Sheikh. He would embody this character to lure the rich and famous into scandalous endeavours which would subsequently be splashed across the newspaper's front pages. From this point onwards, Mazza's identity was protected by the paper, and I think they would credit his stories, even crediting them as the fake Sheikh. Um, or maybe they did use his real name. I can't really remember, but they never had a picture of him. They shielded his identity. So um, he was protected from that point onwards. And Mazza became something of a cause celeb himself as the years went on, almost becoming as infamous as his targets. But of course, no one knew who he really was. He would set up a major sting every few months. So. When he was ready to snare his next victim, the media storm surrounding his last sting would have died down sufficiently enough for people to have forgotten all about it and him. Using his alter ego, Mazza targeted all manner of high-profile people. Sports stars, royalty, actors, no one was off limits. In one of his biggest stings, he engineered a meeting with the Duchess of York, Sarah Ferguson, at London's Dorchester Hotel. Posing as a rich Indian businessman, Mazza filmed the Duchess of York offering to sell access to Prince Andrew, her ex-husband, for half a million pounds. And Andrew was actually the UK's special representative for international trade at the time. A long title for someone who basically went around the world brokering multi-billion dollar trade deals. So access to him could potentially be very beneficial to an overseas businessman. But of course it was a huge scandal if his ex-wife was insinuating that she could influence him and his decision making and the deals that he struck. And of course she was also taking money in return for that. So this really was a humongous scandal. And poor Fergie, she was just desperate for money and, you know, she would kind of do anything. And if you think now what we know about Prince Andrew, well, she could have have told some really scandalous things. She might have done and they just couldn't print it for legal reasons, who knows. So Mazza's stings would take months to set up and the budget for a big sting would often run into hundreds of thousands of pounds just for one article essentially. When he arranged meetings with his targets he would often be dressed in full Middle Eastern headdress and robes. He'd arrange to meet them at top London hotels and restaurants and would even fly targets out to exotic locations by private jet for meetings with other key players who were also part of the sting. And of course, this was all to give the illusion that the sting was not a sting, but a legitimate proposal, whatever that may have been. 
and his general modus operandi was to lure a celebrity in with an offer of some amazing career opportunity before gaining their trust and then manipulating them into selling him drugs or procuring sex workers for him, something like that. So if his target was, say, a big soap star, for example, he might pose as a Middle Eastern film producer and promise them a starring role in a Hollywood film. And you might think it naive of them to believe an opportunity like that would land on their lap, but this guy was so convincing that they always bought it, and he'd build their trust over several months. He'd impress them with first-class flights, meetings with various other film executives, the promise of awards, and then once he had them twisted around his little finger, he would manipulate them into supplying him with cocaine, for example. So all of this would be filmed and then splashed across several pages of the news of the world, a la Soap Star is Secret Cocaine Dealer, that kind of thing. Like, I get it, like, what, you know, they're still doing something wrong. But he's really setting them up for this and really encouraging them to do it, in my opinion. I just think it's not like he turned up and went, do you want to sell me some coke? And they said yes straight away. He's really charmed and flirted with the idea around them for such a long time. And then they go through with it because they want what he's promised. Yeah, he's manipulated them. Absolutely has. Yeah. So no one except for his targets or victims, as I shall call them from now on, really knew that these targets or victims had been manipulated into criminality. In some instances, his victims had done nothing wrong at all, and Mazza had simply lied and edited covert footage to make it look as though they had offered to procure him sex workers, or to get him drugs. And so he carried on for decades as corrupt himself as he would make his victims out to be. And he was rewarded by his industry with a big salary, a huge expenses account and a number of prestigious awards. So as I said, as far as I'm concerned, and you agree I think Bethan as well, these targets were victims. Yes, some of the individuals Mazza exposed had done wrong, but they were all still victims of entrapment or at least subjected to an abusive process which is the legal term used to describe something that is so unfair or wrong that the court should not allow a prosecutor to proceed with the case. When the News of the World ceased publication in 2011, following a number of scandals involving illegal phone hacking, which we could do a whole other episode on, uh, Mazza managed to keep hold of his job, transferring to the newspaper's replacement, The Sun on Sunday. But time was ticking for Mazza. His world was about to collide with a glamorous pop star who would bring about his downfall. Talisa Contos-Stavlos was in a reflective mood as she counted along to the chimes of Big Ben on New Year's Eve in 2012. It had been a busy year for the singer and actress. Not only had she recorded and released an album, she had also spent months filming for her role as a judge on the ninth series of the ITV talent show The X Factor. Any free time had been taken up negotiating lucrative sponsorship deals. Her social media was littered with endorsements. Ugh, isn't that tacky? Taking money to plug a product. (laughs) We would never do that. Well, we'd certainly never plug a product that we didn't genuinely believe in. Jesus Christ, Mark. I know, but honestly, like every, every other post on her Instagram was just plugging something, selling a product, which, fine, because that's how she made some Mm -hmm. of her money, but it's like, you know. Is she genuinely using all of those products, really? Mm. Yeah, you do wonder. So whilst 2012 had been a busy year for Talisa, it had also been a very lucrative one for the star. As the money rolled in, she had splashed out. 
first on a £6 million mansion in the Hertfordshire countryside, then on a succession of high-performance luxury cars. But perhaps the extravagance had been a little premature. Whilst a year looked like it would end on a high note for Talisa with the release of her debut album in December, it had actually ended in disaster when the album was mauled by critics and subsequently proved to be a commercial failure. With her contract on the next series of The X Factor yet to be negotiated, Talisa was starting to feel apprehensive about what 2013 might bring. The big new house came with a big new mortgage, and Talisa felt uncertain about her future financial security for the first time in a long time. Growing up on a council estate in North London, Talisa, who was born in 1988 to mum Anne and father Plato, had dreamed of stardom. Showbiz ran in her blood. Her mum had performed in a band in the 1980s, and her father was a keyboardist with the British rock group Mungo Jerry, which I feel like you'd be a fan of them. I didn't know that they, she actually had famous, like, Proper connections talented there, yeah. parents, yeah. Are you a fan of Mungo Jerry? Um, I'm not necessarily, but... I have heard them, if that Yeah, they were quite you. a big band, weren't they, in the yeah, 70s and 80s? I wouldn't I say I'm a fan, but I've definitely heard, of, like, listened to them. Do you know the song In the Summertime? Yes. Yeah, that's a quality song. That's the only mm-hmm. song I know of theirs, but that is um, guaranteed to get you in a summer mood. So if, if you've is. not heard of them before, please do check them out and certainly listen to that song. It's great. I'll be honest, much better than any of Talisa's music because I am Harsh. not a fan of hers, of her music. I don't know her. There wasn't a, she didn't really release an awful lot of music anyway, so there wasn't much to choose from. It's not even music, Mark. Ooh. Harsh. <laughs> anyway, so um, growing up in the Contos Davlos household, money was tight. Being on the periphery of show business did not pay the big bucks. Talisa's parents split when she was young and she took a central role in caring for her mother from an early age. Anne, who had bipolar and schizoaffective disorder, was plagued by poor mental health throughout Talisa's childhood and was even sectioned under the Mental Health Act at one point. Talisa showed little interest in school and before she had even hit her teens, she'd set her sights on stardom. Forming the band Endubs with her cousin and their friend, she vowed to earn enough money to look after a mum and provide a nice life for them both. And Talisa's ambitions turned into reality when the band became a success in the late 2000s, scoring multiple top 10 hits and a platinum album. But this was only the start for Talisa. She had grand plans and she set about establishing herself as a star in her own right. And so we come full circle back to New Year's Eve in 2012. Just as things had started to take off for Talisa, her professional life was now hanging by a thread. But as the clock struck midnight, dawning the beginning of the new year, Talisa decided to look forward and be positive about any opportunities that would surely present themselves. And she didn't have long to wait. In the spring of 2013, Talisa's management were approached by a film producer called Samir Khan, who expressed an interest in Talisa for the female lead in a Hollywood movie he was producing. Talisa had dabbled in acting before, and the more she heard about the part, the more she knew she was right for it. It had her name written all over it. This was a chance of a lifetime, and she knew Samia Khan was keen on her. She stood a good chance of securing the role, and when Mr Khan offered to meet with her at the exclusive restaurant Nobu in central London, she went all out to impress. 
Samir Khan looked every inch the rich Middle Eastern businessman when Talisa clapped eyes on him in the upmarket Japanese restaurant. Dressed in full robes with a chauffeur-driven Rolls-Royce outside, Talisa knew this was a real deal. He was keen to secure her for the role, but it wasn't a done deal. He had to get his choice of lead role approved by studio executives, and there was also finance to finalise. Talisa would have to impress, and she turned on the charm. When the meeting came to an end, Talisa left the restaurant full of promise. This was the answer to her prayers. I really feel quite sorry for her with this. It's, it just really gives me a bitter taste in my mouth, this whole thing of just... It just makes me think of that seedy guy who's like, you can have the promotion if you get on your knees. It just, it's just disgusting. This is just, I feel really bad for her. And I know she's not perfect. And I know she's not, does everything, you know, she doesn't do everything right. But, oh, it's horrible. Yeah, I I think it was really cruel what they did. Um, I think cruel is the best way to describe it, to be fair. So the movie deal dominated Talisa's thoughts over the following weeks and months. And I'm not surprised, there were numerous follow-up meetings, some with Mr Khan, others with co-producers, scriptwriters and other executives at the studio. Talisa was flown out to Las Vegas and Los Angeles first class for meetings and screen tests, and the deal was inching ever closer. What's more, Mr Khan had told her that he had contacts in the movie industry in the Academy, and that he could potentially secure her an Oscar nomination. They were to start shooting later that year and she would be starring opposite her childhood crush, Leonardo DiCaprio. Talisa couldn't believe that she was so close to movie stardom. Just as her singing career had hit the skids and her role on The X Factor was hanging by a thread, she had managed to diversify and was now dreaming of swapping her Hertfordshire mansion for the Hollywood Hills. After all, she would be able to upgrade now. She was to be paid £3.5 million for her part in this film. Talisa had one final meeting with Mr Khan and his associate in May at the Dorchester Hotel. Also present at this meeting was a friend of Talisa's, her longtime PA, Gareth Fari, and also Mr Khan's PA, a woman who Talisa had grown increasingly fond of over the few months they had known each other. Talisa remarked sometime later how she had always felt safe in this woman's presence how she had a maternal quality about her. This was someone she knew she could instantly trust and she always felt reassured by her presence. This final meeting was fairly informal. Talisa was relaxed in Mr Khan's presence by now and the role was essentially hers. Of course there was still a chance that it could all come crashing down but that was looking less and less likely now. So when Mr Khan said the part called for someone who was, and I hate to use this word, ghetto, and challenged Talisa (laughs) asking if she was ghetto enough to play the part, she began to play up to that image, adopting the persona of someone who was familiar with drugs, happy even in their presence. Encouraged by Mr Khan's PA, who told Lisa she needed to show him that she could be a bad girl, she began chatting loads of shit, saying how she was friends with drug dealers and could get hold of drugs in a minute and so the seeds of her downfall were unfortunately sown. Days later, just inches away from securing the job of her lifetime and still eager to impress, when Mr Khan texted her to say that he was still in town and after half an ounce of cocaine, Talisa offered to procure the drugs for him. She arranged through her friend Michael Coombs to have £820 worth of the Class A drug delivered to him at the Dorchester. But of course it wasn't Mr Khan that he was delivering it to. It was Mazama Mood. Talisa had been well and truly stung. 
Not only had her dreams of movie stardom gone up in smoke, she was now facing the prospect of being arrested for supplying cocaine. Can you imagine just everything that you think you know is going on right now is just turned on its head? And this had been going on for months and months. Mm. You know, her PA Gareth had been phoning various studio executives at different hotels across the entire world in the south of France, in Canada, etc. Um, you know, genuine numbers for those hotels and then being put through to somebody playing the part of a studio executive. So it wasn't just the, you know, the meetings that she and, and Gareth would attend in LA and Vegas, etc. You know, the whole thing was so sophisticated. So a few days later, Talisa was front page of The Sun on Sunday and the career-ending headline screamed at her, Talisa's cocaine deal shame. In that instant, she knew her career was over. In the days that followed, Talisa went into hiding at her Hertfordshire mansion. It didn't take long for the house to become surrounded by paparazzi and even television news crews, all reporting on the downfall of this household name. And Talisa went into shock. How could she have been so stupid? As everything sank in, the embarrassment had been taken in, the allegations of drug dealing now being put against her, the prospect of a trial and prison, she broke down. The following week, Talisa was arrested and interviewed on suspicion of being concerned with the supply of a Class A substance before being bailed. She wasn't charged at this point. A decision on that wouldn't be forthcoming for six long months. That is a long time to be waiting for your fate as well, isn't it? To be in limbo, yeah. In the meantime, she was forced to move out of her mansion due to the constant press intrusion, and her career lay in ruins. What had promised to be a defining year had ended up nearly killing her. She was at breaking point and had contemplated suicide. And in some of the um, articles and documentaries I watched, uh, which kind of documented this, Talisa said that she had to move out of the house because of the press intrusion. But I did, I did wonder if she just perhaps didn't want to say that maybe she was struggling financially at that point and couldn't really keep up the mortgage payments. I, I'm just speculating. I don't know. Yeah, it's maybe a bit easier to save face, isn't it, to sort of say that? And totally understandable if that was the case. So six months later then, in December, Talisa learnt the devastating news that she was to be charged and she would face a trial in July of the following year. In the run-up to her trial, she built her defence with the help of her solicitor Ben Rose and her barrister Jeremy Dean. Talisa's defence essentially rested on the allegation that she was entrapped into committing a criminal offence. Her barrister made the point in an abuse of process hearing at Southwark Crown Court that the police aren't able to entrap someone, so why should the press be able to? After all, they are regulated, they have a duty of care and a code of ethics to adhere to. Any hopes of persuading the judge of this were dashed, however, when he said there was insufficient evidence of gross misconduct and therefore there should be a jury trial and Talisa would be able to have a fair trial. So fast forward six months and the trial began on the 14th of July in 2014. It was a sunny day in South London as Talisa walked past the 50 or so assembled press before making her way into Southwark Crown Court for the first day of what was likely to be a month-long trial. Opening proceedings, the prosecution set out the case against Talisa, painting her as a drug fixer. Text messages were shown to the jury in which Talisa remarked to Mr Khan, I can sort you out. As the days passed, it was looking more and more likely that she would be facing prison. But there was a dramatic turn of events towards the end of the first week. 
When Mazama Mood was cross-examined on day four of the trial, he perjured himself. When he was asked if he had seen the statement his chauffeur had made to police, he admitted that he had. He'd previously denied this under oath, however. The judge said it was likely that Mazza had put pressure on his driver to change his statement. He said, there are strong grounds for believing that Mr Mahmood told me lies. There are also strong grounds for believing that the underlying purpose of these lies was to conceal the fact that he had been manipulating evidence in this case. Consequently, the judge threw out the case, even though Michael Coombs, the man who had allegedly delivered drugs to Mahmood at the Dorchester, had actually pleaded guilty. Alan Smith, Mazza's driver, had said in his statement to police after picking Talisa up from her final meeting at the Dorchester that he'd overheard her talking to her friend about how anti-drug she was. He said she talked about a well-known figure who had been battling a cocaine addiction. He said she talked of the damage drugs had done to the people that she knew and how she'd essentially put a complete act on in Mazza's suite so that she could secure the part once and for all. Do you know what? I kind of... I'm so glad that she did talk about that and it makes you kind of think actually she she wasn't the person that she was acting up to be. Like the real her was out, was coming out in that private conversation then. Definitely. That's it, of course, because that was a private conversation in the back of a chauffeur-driven car. So, you know, she thought it was in private, but yeah, it came out. Um, so yeah, you know, if um, if this film producer wanted to think that she was a bad girl, a ghetto girl, then she would make him believe that she was. But of course, Alan Smith's statement made a mockery of Mazza's assertions that Talisa was someone who was involved in drugs and would happily supply them if asked. It was clear for all to see, Mazza had seen Alan Smith's statement and then persuaded him to amend it, to take out the conversation he'd overheard in the back of that car a conversation that didn't support the narrative that she would willingly supply drugs. As Talisa left court, she said, Let me be perfectly clear. I have never dealt drugs and have never been involved in taking or dealing cocaine. This whole case was a horrific and disgusting entrapment by Mazama Mood and the Sun on Sunday newspaper. And she said later that she had contacted her friend Michael Coombs, but had never intended for him to supply Mazza with cocaine. So, you know, there are still some question marks for me. And don't forget this, this isn't a case of her being found not guilty at the end of a trial. It's a case of this being thrown out by the judge before a verdict could be reached. So, you know, you could speculate here. You could say that maybe she texted her friend Michael Coombs saying, can you get me half an ounce of cocaine? Because Mazza was putting pressure on her and saying, I want screen grabs to prove that you are getting it. Um, So she was doing it that way. Who knows? I just, I don't know. Even if she did say it and actually went to go get it I still kind of feel really quite sorry for her which is which is odd because she's still doing something illegal if that was the case even if she actually arranged to go get it with him I still kind of feel a bit sorry for her so I I do feel exactly the same I think what was being promised what was being put on the table was so big that it was almost like she would do anything for that opportunity and it's a bit like if somebody said to you I'll give you a million pounds in cash right now if you go and vandalise that car. I'm, I'm guessing, Beth, and you would probably do it because I know damn well I would and I'd probably do a lot worse for a million quid. Yeah, I'm not even a million pound would be incredible and it would change your life and your family's life. So what she... You, I didn't know about her background and the fact that she was trying to do all of this to provide for her mum and her family. You would. You, you, you would. And you'd probably... 
even though she's seen friends who've got cocaine issues and has seen the damage that drugs do and is obviously she's not in that life herself this is still somebody who probably talked up the fact that he takes cocaine and probably made a big deal out of the fact that oh he's just too you know he's cool about it well then she's going to be like well he's a grown adult I'll provide it to him and he can make his decisions and I'm not excusing that because that's still wrong but I can understand where she would have thought it was potentially okay to just get over and done with and you know what nobody's perfect and you know she's suffered very badly from depression in the past and other pressures as well so um you know this isn't the first court case that she was involved in up to this point so I kind of think you know even if she did like you say agree to actually supply half an ounce of cocaine to this guy it may have just been a lapse of judgment something that she would go on to really regret um or or equally it might have just been something that she thought well he's a big boy uh you know if if he wants to take cocaine then he can do that and if he um needs a contact then I can put him in touch with someone Um, Was Talisa a a cocaine dealer or a drug dealer? Absolutely not. She was manipulated into a one-off situation. So the Sun on Sunday suspended Mazza pending an immediate internal investigation following the collapse of this trial, but they did defend his actions in the Sting operation saying, We are very disappointed with this outcome, but we do believe the original investigation was conducted within the bounds of the law and the industry's code. Reflecting years later, Talisa said she believed she was targeted because of her class. She said she felt that there was this kind of perception in the media at the time that she'd gotten too big for her boots and needed putting back in a box. And I I have to say the British tabloid, uh, you know, British tabloid journalism is a little bit like that. We like to put people in their place. So we like to build them up quite a lot and then we like to bring them down. That's what they do. Mazza's reputation lay in tatters though and the CPS said they would be looking into 30 historic cases where evidence from him had helped to secure a conviction. Literally dozens of people had been sent to prison following his stings but they were all a sham. Well maybe not all of them but clearly he'd bent the truth and engineered his own narrative on more than one occasion. And even if they potentially weren't were completely normal and true and that's what the person was doing anyway the way that he got them to admit it would not have been it would have been underhanded as well yeah if the truth had come out in the subsequent trials then the trial all of the trials would have been thrown out so you know there's a reason that we have legal process and uh you know the judiciary operating in the way in which it does in this country and that's to ensure everybody gets a fair trial and with this guy bypassing those processes and methods and protocols you know, he wasn't ensuring that people had a fair trial. So uh, so they are victims as far as I'm concerned. So also around this time, former colleagues and associates had started to come out of the woodwork. They were claiming that Mazza often adopted illegal and unethical practices in his pursuit of an exclusive, and he was ultimately sentenced to 15 months in prison at the end of his trial for perjury in October 2016. Alan Smith, his driver, who had changed his statement after being coerced by Mazza, received a 12-month suspended prison sentence. So I've not gone into loads of detail there about uh, Mazza Mahmood's trial because there actually isn't an awful lot of information and I think he pleaded guilty to it anyway, so uh, you know, not much came out from that trial. But a couple of years later, it did take some time, he, um, he did go on trial for perjury, but just uh, with this specific charge in relation to Talisa's court case. 
and he was um, found guilty and sent to prison. If you'd like to see his mugshot, have a look on our Instagram. Mm-hmm. So there's loads of information on the fake shake online if you're interested in learning more about his victims and what happened to them. Um, and I watched an excellent documentary on YouTube called Talisa, The Price of Fame, which documents Talisa's life in the immediate aftermath of the sting and all the way then through up to the collapse of the trial. Um, so it's definitely a, a brilliant watch, a great documentary that gives you a unique insight into what it's like to have a trial hanging over you, what it's like to face the very real prospect that you might go to jail. So um, do check it out. It's a, it's a brilliant documentary. And actually, you know, if you don't feel for Talisa right now, I'm, I'm sure after watching that documentary, you will. And while you're there on YouTube checking out the documentary, don't forget to check out our YouTube channel. We put these episodes up on there with accompanying photos and sometimes bits of like crime watch footage and stuff like that. So it's just another way for you to kind of listen to the show and maybe have a second listen with some of the pictures to go along with it. It's another channel as well for people to discover us. And we do have some other content on there. So just us rambling on about COVID-19 seems to be the only thing at the moment. (laughs) Seems to be the general theme, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, You can also access some other exclusive bonus content on our Patreon page. You can find us at patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. And please do check it out. Supporting us through Patreon makes all the difference. There's no minimum term. You can support us for just a month, a year, whatever suits you. And we have tiers that start at as little as $3 a month. It's all in US dollars, but that's about £2.50 for our UK listeners. And for the $5 a month tier, you get access to our bonus episodes. And I think we've got about 10 or 11 on there. Mm -hmm. Um, And we'll also be releasing a new one on the last Friday of every month going forward. Uh, There'll be a new one out this very Friday. But we've got all sorts of exciting things going on over there. And over 100 of you are regularly supporting us through Patreon. So um, we're so grateful to you and to anybody that signs up. So thank you for your support. And if you don't already follow us there, please do check us out. Yeah. So another way that we're saying thank you is we're running a competition at the moment. So it's open to any existing or new patrons of the show. You've got to sign up and, and continue being a patron as at the 1st of June to be in a chance of winning. Um, we're going to be drawing one lucky winner at random to win a six month subscription to a true crime magazine. Um, this competition is open to everyone wherever you live in the world because the magazine does ship internationally, which is really good. I think that was my first question to you, wasn't it, Mark? I think but it was, if, yeah. What if someone else wins it, not in the UK? Anyway, um, don't forget to check out the show sponsor tales.com. Um, I'll put some pictures up of my dog Cassie there enjoying her delivery. Uh, she's so cute. But yeah, please do check them out. And um, it's 75% off tales.com slash seeing red. Send us your pickies and we'll get them on our social medias too. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye. Bye. 
Hi angels, it's your girl Louise Romball and I'm the host of the Open House Podcast. Therapy quite literally changed my life and sent me straight into my hot healing girl era. Now each week I share my story, the good, the bad and the downright juicy and chat with some of the world's best therapists, psychologists and wellness experts. From love, sex and dating to attachment styles, nervous system regulation, wellness hacks, hormone balancing and more, nothing is off the table. I've emptied my bank account on therapy and healing so you don't have to. So if you're ready to leave the past in the past and build the future you've always deserved, me and my favorite experts are waiting for you on the Open House podcast. Listen now wherever you stream your podcasts and I cannot wait to meet you.